want you to take the Word of God with me this evening and turn to the New Testament book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I've been praying much about starting a new series, and I've mentioned it once or twice, the possibility of starting a series on the Christian home. And uh, just after mentioning it once, I had a number of folks come to me and say, please, would you do a series on the Christian home? And so I believe this is what the Lord would have us to do. And so we'll spend some time together. Um, I think if there's one area that Satan is attacking in the world today, it's the home. And uh, you might say, well, I don't really have a family. Well, we all have a family of some sort. And maybe you're a young person. And you don't quite yet have your own family, but Lord willing, if the Lord Jesus should tarry his coming, you will. You will have one soon. And I wish that I would have had a series preached that I sat beneath before my wife and I were married together. We did have the benefit of actually sitting together in a, in a class entitled The Christian Home, from which many of these notes will come. And I'm thankful to the Lord for that. But many times... Husbands and wives will spend years together trying to figure out how to make it all work. And it would have been helpful at the beginning to receive some sort of instruction from God's Word about the home. And so I'm going to begin uh, a little bit of a series here. And it'll be today, today, tonight's sermon will be entitled, Determining to Have a Christian Home. Nobody has a Christian home on accident. It doesn't happen by accident. And by the way, just because a husband and a wife is Christian doesn't mean your home is Christian. That's one of the biggest mistakes people make. They think, well, we're both Christians, so automatically our home must be Christian. Not necessarily. Although it's vital, if you expect to have a Christian home, then both husband and wife need to be Christian. Well, what makes it Christian? Well, I know. Take all the bad things out. That'll make it Christian. Take out the drugs and take out the drink and take out the television and take out all the bad internet and take out everything bad and then we'll have a Christian home. No, not necessarily. You could have a Jehovah Witness home or a Mormon home. You could have a Muslim home. Doesn't mean you're a Christian home because you take all the bad out. In fact, it's not so much what you take out as it is what you put in. And we want to talk tonight about a determination to have a Christian home. If you are married tonight, then husbands, I hope you're determined that you will have a Christian home. Too many times men leave it to the wives to figure out. And it shouldn't be that way. Determined to have a Christian home. My pastor once said a Christian home was where husband and wife are believers where the Word of God is read and applied daily. It's a home where they live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and a home where Christ has the preeminence. Now, that's the kind of home I want. How do we do it? You might say, how on earth do we get that? There's a few things just by way of introduction I want to share with you, a few thoughts I'll, I'll make mention of them. You can write the references down and check them later if you'd like. Psalm 127, verse number 1. 
You may know this, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. This chapter is a very short one, five verses long. At the end of it, it talks about children. But let me just say this at the very beginning. You can't do it. You can't make it happen. You need God. Except the Lord build the house, you're going to be laboring in vain. Now that doesn't mean you sit back and say, well, God, you're going to have to do it. We'll look practically in a moment what our part is. But there must be an awareness that it will never be, our homes will never be what they should be unless God is building. The flip side of that, the, the, pardon me, the extension of that in the same verse as this, they labor, except the Lord keep the city. The watchman waketh but in vain. I know some fathers and mothers who are so worried right now about their children. And you should be. But you've got to learn to rest in the Lord. Because you can stay up all night long and you can watch your children like a hawk. And you can put a tracking device on them. The government can't even touch your track and trace system. You know, you can do all you want to to keep an eye on your children. But unless the Lord, except the Lord, keep the city, you're watching in vain. My mother used to, I'm, she, I'm telling you, I gave my mother uh, all of her hair, early hair loss and heart attacks. Not, not really, but I can imagine I gave her so much grief. And boy, she was always trying to chase me down and, check up on me and catch me out and i can remember giving her such frustration fathers and mothers husbands and wives let the lord build and let the lord guard now we have our place in that we'll look at that later but you've got to be consciously aware god is our builder and he is our keeper as well let me give you a couple of examples in the old testament in the book of deuteronomy chapter 6 the uh, the nation of Israel would, would keep this principle. This is a principle that is Jews, even today, do their best to maintain in some fashion or another. And uh, look at it there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, or write it down. Verse number 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And uh, the nation of Israel, the, the Jew, Jewish people, took this literally. That's why you find in the New Testament the Pharisees who had phylacteries, uh, boxes of Scripture on their arms and on their heads. Well, the, what the Lord was saying, everything you do ought to be in, in, in direct relation to the Word of God. And all of your thinking ought to be based around the Word of God. You can, you can duct tape a Scripture to your, your face all day long, but it won't change anything if it's not in your mind. And you can, you, can, you can absolutely clothe yourself in Bible verses, but if you don't act according to those verses, then you're wasting time. And so in the Old Testament, they had a principle that in every aspect, in every part of the day, they would take the teachings 
of the word and apply them. One of the mistakes that Christians make in their homes is they compartmentalize their lives. So they sit down in the morning and they say, okay, let's do our morning devotions, which is good, by the way. But after their morning devotions are over, they're no longer Christian until the next time they sit down together to either pray or do their morning devotions. But your entire life ought to be saturated with the Word of God in the way of God. Do not compartmentalize your Christian life. And that's what God is saying here. Teach them to your children all the time. When you're talking, when you sit in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lay down, when you rise up, talk, talk, talk about the truths of God's Word. What do you talk about in your home? There's a good Old Testament example, a good pattern from Israel. Now let me give you a New Testament example. Go to John chapter 12. David, I think we can probably cut that now. I'm going to suffocate up here in just a moment. Let me give you a New Testament example. Now, I love, I, I love hearing the I am statements of Christ. And one of them is found in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And that takes place at the home or around the home of some of Jesus' favorite people. Well, he didn't have favorites, but I like to imagine uh, people that he loved to visit. We find him visiting the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus perhaps more than we find him visiting anybody else's house. Now, that's interesting. That tells us they had a unique home. They had a very special home. And look at John chapter 12 with me. This is after Lazarus was raised from the dead. The first three verses, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, where they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now let me just... Briefly, this is a New Testament example of a Christian home. You know, in John chapter 11, when Jesus showed up on the scene, Mary and Martha were weeping because her brother had died. It was a loving family. It was a loving family. Now, I grew up with one brother, and believe me, we just, if, if one of us got hurt, we weren't crying. We were usually laughing. There was kind of a love and compassion wasn't there, but here was a real love and compassion. A Christian home is a home where there's love. It's a, it's a family. It's a family. This is a family that loved Jesus. And it's evidenced by how they acted and what they sacrificed for him. It's a family that loved the word. We know that because if you remember in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was invited to Mary and Martha's house, do you remember what happened? Martha sat down and the scriptures say she sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. If you want to have a Christian home, you better make certain that your home, you have, a, you have a home of people who love the word of Jesus. It's a family that loved hospitality. I think that's part of being a Christian home. Luke chapter 10 and in John chapter 12, uh, they, they gladly received the Lord into their home. Perhaps why, that's why the Lord Jesus visited so often. He was warmly welcomed. Can I ask you tonight, is the Lord Jesus warmly welcome in your home? It's easy to say, yeah, yeah, of course. But what if he were to walk in tonight? Are you ready for him? What if he were to walk in last night? I don't know what was going on last night, but are you ready for him? Think about that. It's a family, it's a home where Christ loved to be. We assume that because he went there quite frequently. 
Can you imagine that thought? That Jesus would actually like to come to our homes? Can I ask you, are you living the kind of a life, is your home the kind of a place where Christ would love to be? Think about that. It's a home that was filled with the presence of the Savior. I think that's demonstrated when Mary took that ointment and broke it and the odor filled. The house was filled with the odor of the ointment signifying to everybody in the entire house. No matter where you were in the house, everybody knew a sacrifice had been given and made and poured out upon the Savior. Does everybody in your home and in your house know that you love the Lord Jesus and you've made a sacrifice for him? Good example. Good New Testament example. And examples are great. They're great to be viewed alongside of clear teaching. And that's where we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3 because we're going to pair up with these examples of Old Testament example and New Testament example and let's look together at the ingredients of a truly Christian home. I want my home to be truly Christian. And by the way, not just Christian when other Christians show up and visit, if you know what I mean. We're funny people, aren't we? We know how to turn that switch on when guests come. Ooh, quick, put the Bible verses out and put the television away. And, and I don't want to be that way. I want you to be able to walk into my home any day of the week, any hour of the day. You may want to check with my wife first. And then make sure, I'd love for you to be able to walk in any time. And you'll, you, what you see is what you get. That's the way it should be. I'm not talking about being tidy we ought to be tidy, but I'm just saying that's not it. I'm talking about the, the aroma, the atmosphere of our homes. Colossians chapter 3 is an excellent chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. One of my first sermons I ever preached came from the opening verses of Colossians chapter 3. And this is an excellent chapter. At the end of the chapter, we're given instruction to the home. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, servants. We're given instructions at the end of the chapter to the home. So we have an idea that the entirety of the context of this is dealing with our interaction with one another. And so let's look together from Colossians chapter 3 at the ingredients of a Christian home. And before Paul gets into the clear, specific words of instruction to the wife or to the husband, before he gets there, he begins with a few principles. Now, I love the way that God's word is written. God's Word is filled with many different teaching techniques. God very often gives us clear commands, doesn't He? Don't do this, do that. But He also gives us principles, which are timeless. And uh, they're given in such a way that uh, although they're specific to, every, to that generation in which they were written, they are just as applicable today. Look with me at verse number 1. If ye then be risen with Christ... Meaning, if you're saved, are you born again? Do you have new life in Christ? Okay, then if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. There's your first principle for a Christian home. Make certain that you are all seeking heavenly things. Husbands and wives, you've got to be on the same page with this. You can't have one who who are seeking heavenly reward and heavenly things, and the other seeking worldly things. Seek those things which are above. Set, by the way, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, signifying we ought to be seeking Him. Set your affection on things above. There's your second principle. Make sure your seeking is the same. Make sure your, your setting of your affection 
is the same. Some could say, set your mind, uh, set your all that you have on things above, not on things on the earth. I like the, uh, the translation affection, because affection is where your heart is. And oftentimes, where our heart is, is where the rest of us go. So make sure your affections are on things above. And then he gives us a number of instructions about your life. He says in the very next verse, ye are dead. Now he's talking positionally. Do you know if you've been born again, you're dead. You're de your old man's dead. You have a new life in Christ. So he's reminding you, by the way, if you're going to have a Christian home, one of the key ingredients is making sure you're dead. Uh, I've often thought about this, and I've, I've used this before, but if you're dead, a dead man can't really get upset, can he? A dead man can't really get offended. You can, you can, you can call him names, and you can say what you want to, but it's not going to bother him. Dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. So Paul gives us positionally where we are. We are dead, dead to our old man. We are hid with Christ in God. Beautiful picture. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And then he gives us some, some very practical instructions. Mortify, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth. And now he gives us an active word of instruction. You're going to have to put to death certain things. You know, every strife and contention and every fuss and every fight happens because somebody didn't put something to death. They didn't, they didn't crucify the flesh. Only by strife cometh contention, the scripture says. I want you to remember that the next time there's an argument in your home, only by strife cometh contention. Pride. Only by strife, pride cometh contention. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Now there's a word of instruction about your mouth. I'm going to spend quite some time and a weeks ahead about your mouth and the danger that your tongue can cause in your home. The danger that you can do, the damage you can do with your tongue. And Paul tells us just there in two verses. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. And now we have from verse number 12, seven, in the next couple of verses, seven key ingredients to the Christian life to the Christian home. And I want you to circle them, remember them, write them down, do something so that you can examine and see whether or not these seven things are present in your home. Verse 12 and verse 13. Look at the first one. Put on therefore 
as the elect of God, as His children, as His chosen ones, we ought to have these seven things in our lives individually and in our homes. Now, I want all of you to look here. That goes for children. Now, do you know, children, I want all of you to know Jesus as your Savior. That's the first step. Comes in, coming to know Christ as your Savior. But from the top down, father, mother, children, these seven things ought to be found. And I want you children to work at this. Look at verse number 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. That's a description for those who are his children. Holy. Are you living a holy life? And beloved. You are greatly loved of God. Put on. Look what he says. First thing. Bowels of mercies. First on the list. In the Bible, oftentimes the word bowel is a reference to the innermost part of a man. From our innermost being should flow mercies to our husbands and our wives. And they should be tender and compassionate mercies. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. Now, there's nothing worse than a nagging wife or husband. I'll put that out there for my own safety. There's nothing worse. Someone who's constantly correcting the other spouse. That's damaging. And the first thing on the list are bowels of mercy from the very depths inside. Be merciful. You don't have to say everything that's wrong. Mercy is holding back. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. Well, that was stupid. And you didn't have to say that. Why do you always, oh, hold on. You don't have to say that. Bowels of mercy, tender mercies. Do you remember what David cried out? I think it's amazing to me that we can get on our knees and beg and plead God to have mercy upon us and then turn around and not be willing to give mercy to the one that we say we love the most. There's something wrong with that. Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Well, then you and I ought to be willing to have tender mercies to our spouses. Tender, compassionate bowels of mercies. We should share with our spouse and our children everything that they're going through. And we should resent anything that brings them suffering, that brings them down. We should, we should have a holy indignation inside of us when we see our husband or wife hurting. That should bother us. Bowels of mercy. Second on the list. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness. Now, that ought to be self-explanatory. Now, I knew somebody growing up, I'm not going to mention their name or their relation to me, but I knew somebody growing up who was the kindest man in all the world to everybody that he met except his wife. And I always thought it was strange. He was very kind, very generous, very giving. But can I tell you, if it's not happening at home, I don't care how kind you are to everybody else in the world. Let it begin at home. If you can't show kindness to your husband or wife, then you can't show kindness to anyone. Make a list of kind things 
Make a list of kind things you could do and you could say and things that you've thought about your wife or your husband. Kindness is really just a really simple thing, isn't it? Saying and doing good to those that we love as often as we can. My wife and I have tried our best. We're trying our best to raise our children in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. We've, my wife has read more books certainly than I have. She reads them and tells me about them, and then that makes me feel like I've read it. But she's read a number of books about children, uh, raising children in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And, and uh, she read something one time that I'll never forget. She mentioned it to me. I don't remember who was youngest, but uh, something like this. It said something like this. For every word of criticism towards your child, you ought to give 10 words of exhortation. Well, I thought that was, that was pretty good. Because it's easy, isn't it, to criticize and point out. That could be applied as well to husbands and wives. But especially little ones, how tender they are. And I'm, it's, not saying don't criti- it's not saying don't set them right. It's not saying don't put them on the right path, but make sure that you're not always. There's nothing worse than a child feeling like they're always being fussed at. You ever felt that way? I felt that way growing up. Now, probably it's my own fault, I'm sure. And uh, children, I'm sure much of it can be your fault. But let's be kind. Look at the second thing. Third thing, pardon me. Bowels of mercy, number one. Kindness, number two. Look at the next thing. Humbleness of mind. This must be present in the Christian home. Or you don't have a Christian home. A Christian home is a Christ-like home. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Bible says he made himself of no reputation. So there must be a humility of mind. It's the opposite of pride and arrogance. Pride thinks that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And pride says, uh, I need to be the one taken care of. How come my needs aren't being met? Humility of mind. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3. Is that lovely little passage I just mentioned there? Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Can I tell you where many marriages fail? Is when the husband is thinking more of himself than he is his wife, or the wife is thinking more of herself than she is her husband. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Husband, you've got it wrong if you think that God sent that little lady along just to serve you and make your life easier. And wife, you've got it wrong if you think God sent that man along to take care of all of your problems. You're to labor together to honor and glorify the Lord. Humbleness of mind. That requires the mind of Jesus Christ. When something becomes your mindset, it becomes what you do without thinking. You ever had that? We say that before. They had that mindset or I had this kind of a mindset. A humble mind will never constantly criticize the ones we love. It'll never seek to put down or humiliate them. A humble mind will always put the other first. Humility. Is there humility in your home? can't say you have a Christian home if there's not humility present. But look at the next one on the list. Humbleness of mind, 
meekness. I love this word. You've probably heard me talk about this before if you've been around for any length of time. Meekness is more than gentleness. That's part of it. But meekness has to do with submission. Moses was called the meekest man that ever lived. And that's because he was in complete submission to the will of God. If meekness is present in a home, it will be evidence. Evidenced by the fact that the husband is in submission to God and the wife is in submission to the leading of her husband and a mild quietness and stability will be present in the home. Meekness literally comes from a word that means used to the hand. That's a word that has to do with taming an animal. And an animal, all the strength of an animal being brought beneath control and submission of a master and an owner and therefore becoming usable. If you looked at the Latin translation of, of Scripture, the word meekness uh, there was, was from that word that meant used to, a hand, used to the hand in reference to taming an animal. Some of you need to be tamed. You're not meek. And because you're not meek, God can't use you. I've told this story a hundred times. You're going to probably groan when I tell it again. But when I was 11 years old at Christmas time, we all sat around the living room to get, receive our Christmas presents. And there, my brother, we used to pile all, all our gifts up in a pile. My brother had his stack of presents. My mother had hers. My father had his. And I looked around and I said, hold on just a moment. My pile was a lot smaller than everybody else's. Well, something's not right here, I thought. I opened my presents, of course, more quickly than everybody else did, and I acted like I was happy with them while they continued unwrapping their presents. I couldn't help but feel like I'd been hard done by. I'd been cheated. And then after they had opened all of their presents, my mother looked at me and she said, oh, there's one more present for you. I thought, that's about time. And she said, it's outside. So we went outside together down the hill to the barn. She slid open the barn door, and there was a brand new horse. And I was into horse riding at the time and, and um, tra training horses. And, and I was, and anyways, when I saw that horse, I was filled with such excitement. I threw my arms in the air like this. And the second I did that, that horse went nuts. That, my mother had bought that horse off of a, an Amish farm down the road. And they couldn't tame that horse. And after beat, weeks and weeks and months of beating that horse and not getting anywhere with it, finally they decided to sell it for pennies. That's all we could afford. So my wife, I don't know how she got it there. My, my mother, I don't know how she got it there, but she got it home. And that horse was so afraid. Anytime you, because she'd been beaten so much, every time you raised your hand, she would just go wild. But after months and months of carefully walking and talking, just standing and whispering to her, finally I could put my hand on her and rub my hand on her back and up her neck and and touch her ears, and then I could put my arm over her back and put a little weight, and after many months, I could climb on her back without her trying to kill me. Now, what happened? She became tame. Did she lose any strength? She was just as strong several months after I had tamed her than she was when I first got her. But the difference was now she was useful. And you and I will never be useful to the Lord or to his work until we understand this principle of meekness. Some of you have a wild horse inside of you that needs to be tamed. And every once in a while, it rears up, comes out, doesn't it? 
Well, a Christian home must be a home where meekness is found. The Lord Jesus was meek. Do you think he was weak? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. All the strength of creator God under the control in a human body. That's meekness. It's got to be found in your home. Look at the next word. A Christian home is one where you'll find bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. That is exactly what it says. Suffering long. Most wives are pretty long-suffering. But sadly, very few husbands are. I used to go into a home when I was younger, and the older gentleman would start fussing. Wanda! That was the name of his wife. Bring me a Coke. Wanda! This Coke's too warm. Wanda! Constant, constant. And there was something wrong. Long-suffering is being able, and, and here, here would come Wanda. Every time. Bringing a Coke. Bringing another Coke. She was long-suffering. But I'm afraid many men don't know what long-suffering is. It's putting up with one another's faults and failings without getting angry and frustrated, even when they continue to provoke us. Long-suffering is, long is directly linked to patience, and it's a gift that always puts the other first. If something about our loved one really annoys us and provokes us, then long-suffering is that gift that enables us to deal with it gently and quietly without exasperation. Long-suffering. Look at the next thing. Long-suffering, uh, verse number 13, forbearing one another. Now, this is understanding the faults of others and bearing with them. The idea of getting it underneath of them. If one is forgetful on a regular basis, well, that would test your patience, no doubt about it. Forbearing would bear with him and just get on with it. You learn. If you like, you could say it's the ability to tolerate. Some of you need some of that, right? Forbearing and getting beneath one and helping to bear whatever that is, being willing to bear whatever that difficulty that struggle is look at the next thing forgiving one another that's self-explanatory if you and i could learn to forgive our loved ones as christ jesus has forgiven us then our homes would be very happy and peaceful places there's nothing worse than people holding grudges now it's my turn to pick on the, the women for a little bit sometimes women have a harder time with this than men do men usually forget about it no, what was that? We, I don't even remember what we was fussing about. And women may not, they remember every detail for months and years. And the man has completely forgotten about it and he's completely forgotten there was even a problem. And sometimes there's someone holding on to a grudge. Forgive one another and move on. We will all let one another down, won't we? We'll all hurt each other, but forgiveness overcomes all of these things and enables us to move on. I think some people, uh, this is one of their holdups in their Christian life. Some people, this is one of their holdups in coming to Jesus Christ because they're not willing to forgive. 
Maybe they're not willing to forgive somebody that hurt them years ago, a father or a mother, some other relationship. And, and because they're unwilling to forgive, they can't go any further. And so it is in a relationship with many people. Now, there's your seven ingredients. But in this chapter, we then come to a few things that you've got to allow to work in your Christian home. You need those seven ingredients that are not going to be accidental. You're going to have to ask the Lord to give them to you and watch carefully your own life in these matters. But there are a couple of things that you have got to allow to work in your life. Look at it with me in verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Some of you get so worked up about things. You ought to let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let it have dominion in your heart. The peace of God that passes all understanding. That says, look, I know what I'm going through is difficult right now. But God is giving me peace. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Do you know that the peace of God is in your heart? If you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you just need to let it rule. If you've been born again, the peace of God is already there. You have peace with God and the peace of God is present. You just need to let it rule. But some of us like to stew and steam. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also ye are called in one body and be ye thankful. I wonder how many of your homes are thankful homes. Now, this week I pulled one of my children aside and pulled them up on my lap. And this little one having a bit of a difficult time with some grumbling and murmuring and complaining. And I pulled them up on my lap and I said to them, now, what do you have to be thankful for? I don't know. Nothing. Now, come on. Is there anything that you're thankful for? And little by little, we began to pull some things out that they were thankful for. And we began to realize that there's a whole lot more to be thankful for than there is to complain about. And if you husbands and wives and children can learn to be thankful, it'll make it'll change the atmosphere in your home. I don't like this food. I don't like to be thankful that you've got food. Well, hold up. My trousers are dirty. I don't have any clean socks. At least you have socks. Put a dirty pair on. At least you've got socks. Be thankful. Learn to be thankful. And look what else it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Allow the word of Christ. Now, I think that's significant. That's not just the word of God, although that's part of it, but the word of Christ. The teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ which were extremely practical. Many of the teachings of Christ, if you, for instance, take the Sermon on the Mount, are extremely practical on how to live a blessed life, extremely practical and warning of things to come. But let the words of Christ dwell, live in you richly. That doesn't mean just breeze through a chapter or two a day. Let it live in you. Let it work its way out of your life, out of your conversation in every part, richly. You ever, you ever met somebody, I love being around people who are in God's word. And it just flows. There are a couple of people I can think of right now. Every time I talk to them, it's, a, it's, a, it's an edifying spiritual conversation every time. Right to the chase. 
No talk about the weather, no talk about football, no talk about corona. Straight to the chase. The word of God. It's dwelling richly in them. It's bubbling over and they can't help it. Your home ought to be like that. That'll change things. Your home ought to be a place where the word of Christ is dwelling richly in all wisdom. And then we find something very interesting. We find the kind of instruction that should be found in your home. Now look what it says. Let the word of Christ, the Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Do you know your homes ought to be the best schoolhouse on the planet? I'm not, I'm not talking just about homeschooling or home educating, whatever term you want to use. My wife and I do teach our children at home, but that's, I'm not talking directly about that. I'm talking about your home ought to be a place of learning. Sometimes parents are so tired and children are so tired of school that they all come home and they all want to veg. And that's when people get annoyed at one another because they think everybody wants to have a break and everybody wants to just relax and father wants to relax and mother wants to relax and children have been at school all day and, and they want to go play and do. And so there's no time. Nobody takes the time. But your home has got to be a place of education, of instruction, every way imaginable. You're teaching your children how to respond. You're teaching your children what's important. You're teaching your children uh, everything. I can remember growing up, my mother was always constantly nagging, sit up straight, stand up straight, uh, constantly. And she was teaching me early, early how to present myself. Brush your teeth for three minutes a day. Oh, three minutes. Watch the clock. She was teaching me things without even, re without even realizing it teaching me things about hygiene, teaching me things about a work ethic, dragging me out of bed to do chores every day. And that was good. Your home was a place of instruction. But look what the scriptures say, teaching and admonishing out of this word of Christ dwelling in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This actually came up in our little prayer time here uh, this week, which was very encouraging. And uh, one of our friends is studying biblical languages. And sometimes people who, who sing exclusively psalms in churches use this to say, well, those are actually uh, three titles of the kinds of psalms found in the psalms. That's, that's true in part, but the psalms were never, ever alluded to with those three words like this. So Paul isn't saying just sing psalms. He's saying, look, you, you make certain that in your home you are educating and instructing one another by the way that the music you're singing and sharing with one another. So turn off the rubbish and put something on that will be edifying and instructing. Think about that. That you can even teach children by the things that you're listening to. Some of, some of the fondest memories that... I have with my children are when we crank up some Christian music together and singing out together. And I can just envision my children singing to the top of their lungs. That's a special, special thing to do. But you're teaching and admonishing. The word admonish means to warn, to caution, or to reprove gently. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. What a marvelous opportunity in your home. Now, I'm going to quickly run through the individuals that are listed here. We're out of time. But we're given in this text really four characters in the home. 
Look at it there briefly. Wives, husbands, children, fathers. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Christian home ought to be a home where there is a submissive wife. Now, I know we're living in a culture that doesn't like to hear that. And they would like to take the Bible out of your hand and burn it because it says that. But God has a God-given, God-ordained method for the Christian home, and it works. It doesn't mean the man is better than the wife, but just it's a matter of order. Just as the Savior was submissive unto the Father. Do you think that uh, that meant that Jesus, the Son, was any less than God the Father? No, it was a matter of order, a matter of submission. And so the man is not better than the wife. By the way, fellas, get that out of your head. It doesn't mean that you're better than the wife. It means you have the responsibility to lead and the accountability to care for your family. But a Christian home is one where the wives submit to their husbands. As unto the Lord, Paul writes to the Ephesians. Wives are to follow their husbands as they would follow Jesus. Now, I know your husband's not Jesus, but that's the way you ought to follow. Husbands, love your wives. The one word of instruction, love your wife. Because, fellas, you and I don't really know how to do it. Love your wife. It's hard. We don't, we're not really love to us. Well, we all need love, of course, but... For most fellas, you know, we're, we're okay. We're rough and ready. We, you know, we don't need too many hugs, cuddles, and kisses. We can, you know, we're okay. But a, a woman needs to be loved. And not the way you think she needs to be loved, but the way she thinks she needs to be loved. And that's where the conflict comes sometimes. We pat them on the back. Ah, oh, yes, I love you. Thank you. No, 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 no. Love your wife. Love her. As Christ loved the church. And gave himself, it's a sacrificial love. Gave himself for it. That's what Paul writes to the Ephesians. And it says, be, be not bitter against them. Because if you're not careful, you can get bitter with your wife. It's interesting, it doesn't say that to the wife, but it says it to the husband. Children, do you know what your word of instruction is? Children, obey your parents. In all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. A Christian home is a home. Look here, children. Boys, boys, Eli, Thomas. A Christian home is a home where the children are obedient and honoring unto the Lord. So your father and mother have a great responsibility, but so do you. That's hard. The older a child gets, the more independent they want to be and the more they think they know best. But the truth of the matter is, the older you get, the more you begin to realize how little you actually know. I can remember being a teenager thinking, my mother doesn't have a clue what she's doing. And I wish she'd just let me, you know, I, I've got this figured out. And every once in a while, not always, but every once in a while, one of my older or oldest children get that idea that they, they know what's best. They forget that they're still little. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. A Christian home is a home where children are obedient in honoring their father and their mother. Let me give you one last thing. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Now, this is huge. 
I'll tell you why God, I believe God put this here. Because so many people's relationship with God is wrong because their relationship with their father is wrong. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger. There are three ways you can do that, fathers. Unrealistic expectations. Look, your children are lost. They're born into this world lost. Do you forget that? They need to be saved. None of these little ones, as beautiful as they are, as precious as they are, as lovely as they are, none of these children are Christian just because, Mommy and Daddy, you're Christian. They're born in this world lost. You can't expect a lost child to act like a converted Christian. Now, I'm not saying you allow them to live in sin. I'm not saying that at all. Not, not at all. But how you deal with them and how you speak to them and how you handle them is crucial. Unrealistic expectations. Here's another way you can, you can provoke your children by hypocrisy. Fathers, look here. This is to you. Men, this is to us. Nothing provokes a child more than hypocrisy. Acting one way at church in front of all of God's people and another way at home. Your child sees that. Your child can see it. You're not fooling them. And the third way is if you harbor unforgiveness, fathers. Provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. Now, this is just the beginning. I want every home, every family in the Oxford Baptist Chapel to be truly a Christian home. So that's just me. Well, I want it to be a truly Christian home, beginning with just you. Well, it's just us two. We don't have any children. I want it to be a truly Christian home with just you two. And if you have children, your whole family. It will not happen by accident. But a church is only as strong as its families are. Satan is attacking the home and the families. So let's guard our homes knowing that God ultimately is guarding them, watching them. But let's determine, let's be determined that we will have a Christian home. This is the beginning and I'm hoping that God will use it to help us. Remember those seven things. May the Lord help you begin to implement them in the days ahead. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the opportunity to gather this evening, for the opportunity to open thy word so much is found in this book about our homes, about our families. And we ask of thee, Lord, help us. Help our homes to be truly Christian. May they be pleasing and honoring unto thee. Help us with these things we ask in Christ Jesus' name.